0: WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Where You'll Find Me by Anne Beattie, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 1986.
1: What's wrong with me, Howard says. It's almost the first time he's looked at me since I arrived. I've been trying not to register my boredom and my frustration with Kate's prattle. Maybe we should get a tree, I say. I don't think it's Christmas that's making me feel this way, Howard says.
0: The story was chosen by Greg Jackson, whose debut story collection, Prodigals, was published in 2016. Hi, Greg. Hi, Deborah. So you were once a student of Ann Beattie's, right?
1: Yes, I was. Where
0: where and when was that?
1: I was her student at the University of Virginia in 2011, 2012. Um, I had a workshop with her, and she was then my thesis advisor, um, and... I chose her as my thesis advisor because she never liked any of my work. (laughs) And I thought, what better person to learn from? (laughs) I I knew in some sense that uh, she was right and that my work wasn't very good, but I didn't really know why. And I thought if I just hung out with her for a really long time, I'd figure out what she knew that I didn't. Did that work? Um, You know, it's funny. (laughs) It didn't really work. And I think this is like the side of teaching writing that's impossible. But she did tell me a number of things That were so true that when I was able to understand what she was saying, I realized if I'd gotten it at the time, it would have helped a lot. But it's one of those things where you have to actually experience the truth of it in practice. She was dead on, but um, it's just it's hard to like hear a maxim and then be like, oh, yeah, that's what I should be doing in my writing.
0: Yeah. And at that time, had you read a lot of her work?
1: I'd read a fair number of her stories, partly coming into Virginia. I knew that she was one of the people I was really excited about studying with. But I can't say that I had a kind of comprehensive view of her career.
0: What was it that appealed to you about the stories that you'd read?
1: Well, they were so different from what I was doing and probably different from, in some ways, from what I've gone on to do. Um, You know, I think sometimes people apply this term minimalism, and I think She rebels against that term, and I understand why. I don't think she's minimalist, but I did think of myself at the time as maximalist, as (laughs) trying to kind of fit as much of all the nuance of any given moment into um, what I was writing. And I felt like with her, there was some ability to just say less than I ever would have been comfortable saying. And somehow in saying less to conjure something that's so kind of rich and mysterious in just itself... It was a kind of discipline that I didn't have and and still don't really have.
0: Yeah. And when you um, chose this story, Where You'll Find Me, which I think you said you now teach, was that a story you knew back then? Is it a story that you came to later?
1: It's one of my probably two or three very favorites of hers, and I've loved teaching this story because it seems on the surface very straightforward, um, but it actually has such depths and reservoirs of symbol and metaphor and sort of deep structures that it's very fun and interesting to work with students to see how something can kind of work just completely on the surface level and kind of have these depths that you drop into.
0: Well, maybe we should drop into them now. Okay. (laughs) And then we can talk a little more. So now here's Greg Jackson reading Where You'll Find Me by Ann Beattie.
1: Where You'll Find Me. Friends keep calling my broken arm a broken wing. It's the left arm now folded against my chest and kept in place with a blue scarf sling that is knotted behind my neck, and it weighs too much ever to have been wing-like. The accident happened when I ran for a bus. I tried to stop it from pulling away by shaking my shopping bags like maracas in the air, and that's when I slipped on the ice and went down. So I took the train from New York City to Saratoga yesterday instead of driving. I had the perfect excuse not to go to Saratoga to visit my brother at all, but once I had geared up for it, I decided to go through with the trip and avoid guilt. It isn't Howard, I mind, but his wife's two children, a girl of 11 and a boy of three. Becky either pays no attention to her brother, Todd, or else she tortures him. Last winter, she used to taunt him by stalking around the house on his heels, clomping close behind him wherever he went, which made him run and scream at the same time. Kate did not intervene until both children became hysterical and we could no longer shout over their voices. I think I like it that they're physical, she said. Maybe if they enact some of their hostility like this, they won't grow up with the habit of getting what they want by playing mind games with other people. It seems to me that they will not ever grow up, but will burn out like meteors. Howard has finally found what he wants, the opposite of domestic tranquility. For six years, he lived in Oregon with a pale, passive woman. On the rebound, he married an even paler pre-med student named Francine. That marriage lasted less than a year. And then, on a blind date in Los Angeles, he met Kate, whose husband was away on a business trip to Denmark just then. In no time, Kate and her daughter and infant son moved in with him to the studio apartment in Laguna Beach he was sharing with the screenwriter. The two men had been working on a script about Medgar Evers, but when Kate and the children moved in, they switched to writing a screenplay about what happens when a man meets a married woman with two children on a blind date and the three of them move in with him and his friend. Then Howard's collaborator got engaged and moved out, and the screenplay was abandoned. Howard accepted a last-minute invitation to teach writing at an upstate college in New York, and within a week they were all ensconced in a drafty Victorian house in Saratoga. Kate's husband had begun divorce proceedings before she moved in with Howard, but eventually he agreed not to sue for custody of Becky and Todd in exchange for child support payments that were less than half of what his lawyer thought he would have to pay. Now he sends the children enormous stuffed animals that they have little or no interest in, with notes that say, put this in mom's zoo. A stuffed toy every month or so, giraffes, a life-sized German shepherd, an overstuffed standing bear, and every time the same note. The bear stands in one corner of the kitchen, and people have gotten in the habit of pinning notes to it, reminders to buy milk or get the oil changed in the car. Wrap-around sunglasses have been added, scarves and jackets are sometimes draped on its arms. Sometimes the stuffed German Shepherd is brought over and propped up with its paws placed on the bear's haunch, imploring it. Right now I'm in the kitchen with the bear. I've just turned up the thermostat. The first one up in the morning is supposed to do that, and I'm dunking a tea bag in a mug of hot water. For some reason, it's impossible for me to make tea with loose tea and the tea ball unless I have help. The only tea bag I could find was Emperor's Choice. I sit in one of the kitchen chairs to drink the tea. The chair seems to stick to me, even though I have on thermal long johns and a long flannel nightgown. The chairs are plastic, very 1950s, patterned with shapes that look sometimes geometric, sometimes almost human. Little things like malformed hands reach out toward triangles and squares. I asked. Howard and Kate got the kitchen set at an auction for $30. They thought it was funny. The house itself is not funny. It has four fireplaces, wide board floors, and high dusty ceilings. They bought it with his share of an inheritance that came to us when our grandfather died kate's contribution to restoring the house has been transforming the baseboards into faux marble how effective this is has to do with how stone she is when she starts sometimes the baseboards look like clotted versions of the kitchen chair pattern instead of marble kate considers what she calls parenting to be a full-time job when they first moved to saratoga she used to give piano lessons Now she ignores the children and paints the baseboards. And who am I to stand in judgment? I am a 38-year-old woman, out of a job, on tenuous enough footing with her sometime lover that she can imagine crashing emotionally as easily as she did on the ice. It may be true, as my lover Frank says, that having money is not good for the soul. Money that is given to you, that is. He is a lawyer who also has money but it is money he earned and parlayed into more money by investing in real estate. An herb farm is part of this real estate. Boxes of herbs keep turning up at Frank's office. Herbs in foil, herbs in plastic bags, dried herbs wrapped in cones of newspaper. He crumbles them over omelets, roasts, vegetables. He is opposed to salt. He insists herbs are more healthful. And who am I to claim to love a man when I am skeptical even about his use of herbs? I am embarrassed to be unemployed. I am insecure enough to stay with someone because of the look that sometimes comes into his eyes when he makes love to me. I am a person who secretly shakes on salt in the kitchen, then comes out with her plate smiling as basil is crumbled over the tomatoes. Sometimes in our bed his fingers smell of rosemary or tarragon. Strong smells sour smells. Whatever Shakespeare says or whatever is written in Culpeper's complete herbal, I cannot imagine that herbs have anything to do with love. But many brides-to-be come to the herb farm and buy branches of herbs to stick in their bouquets. They anoint their wrists with herbal extracts to smell mysterious. They believe that herbs bring them luck. These days they want tubs of rosemary in their houses, not ficus trees. I got in, right on the cusp of the new world, Frank says. He isn't kidding. For the Christmas party tonight, there are cherry tomatoes halved and stuffed with peaks of cheese, mushrooms stuffed with pureed tomatoes, tomatoes stuffed with chopped mushrooms, and mushrooms stuffed with cheese. Kate is laughing in the kitchen. No one's going to notice, she mutters. No one's going to say anything. Why don't we put out some nuts, Howard says. Nuts are so conventional. This is funny, Kate says squirting more soft cheese out of a pastry tube. Last year we had mistletoe and mulled cider. Last year we lost our sense of humor. What happened that we got all hyped up? We even ran out on Christmas Eve to cut a tree. The kids, Howard says. That's right, she says, the kids were crying. They were feeling competitive with the other kids or something. Becky was crying. Todd was too young to cry about that, Howard says. Why are we talking about tears, Kate says. We can talk about tears when it's not the season to be jolly. Everybody's going to come in tonight and love the wreaths on the picture hooks and think the food is so festive. We invited a new Indian guy from the philosophy department, Howard says. American Indian, not an Indian from India. If we want, we can watch the tapes of Jewel in the Crown, Kate says. I'm feeling really depressed, Howard says, backing up to the counter and sliding down until he rests on his elbows. His tennis shoes are wet. He never takes off his wet shoes, and he never gets colds. Try one of those mushrooms, Kate says. They'll be better when they're cooked, though. What's wrong with me, Howard says. It's almost the first time he's looked at me since I arrived. I've been trying not to register my boredom and my frustration with Kate's prattle. Maybe we should get a tree, I say. I don't think it's Christmas that's making me feel this way, Howard says. We'll snap out of it, Kate says. You can open one of your presents early if you want to no no howard says it isn't christmas he hands a plate to kate who has begun to stack the dishwasher i've been worrying that you're in a lot of pain and you just aren't saying so he says to me it's just uncomfortable i say i know but do you keep going over what happened in your mind when you fell or in the emergency room or anything i had a dream last night about the ballerinas at victoria pool i say It was like Victoria Pool was a stage set instead of a real place, and a tall, thin ballerina kept parading in and twirling and pirouetting. I was envying their being able to touch their fingertips together over their heads. Howard opens the top level of the dishwasher, and Kate begins to hand him the rinsed glasses. You just told a little story, Howard says. You didn't really answer the question. I don't keep going over it in my mind, I say. So you're repressing it, he says. Mom, Becky says, walking into the kitchen. Is it okay if Deirdre comes to the party tonight if her dad doesn't drive here to pick her up this weekend? I thought her father was in the hospital, Kate says. Yeah, he was, but he got out. He called and said it was going to snow up north, though, so he wasn't sure if he could come. Of course she can come, Kate says. And you know what, Becky says? Say hello to people when you come into a room, Kate says. At least make eye contact or smile or something. I'm not Miss America on the runway, Mom. I'm just walking into the kitchen. You have to acknowledge people's existence, Kate says. Haven't we talked about this? Oh, hello, Becky says, curtsying by pulling out the sides of an imaginary skirt. She has on purple sweatpants. She turns toward me and pulls the fabric away from her hip bones. Oh, hello, as if we've never met, she says. Your aunt here doesn't want to be in the middle of this, Howard says. She's got enough trouble. Get back on track, Kate says to Becky. What did you want to say to me? You know what you do, Mom, Becky says? You make an issue of something, and then it's like, when I speak, it's a big thing. Everybody's listening to me. Kate closes the door to the dishwasher. Did you want to speak to me privately, she says? No, Becky says, sitting in the chair across from me and sighing. I was just going to say, and now it's a big deal, I was going to say that Deirdre just found out that the guy she was writing all year is in prison. He was in prison all the time, but she didn't know what the P.O. box meant. What's she going to do, Howard says. She's going to write and ask him all about prison, Becky says. That's good, Howard says. That cheers me up to hear that. The guy probably agonized about whether to tell her or not. He probably thought she'd hot potato him. Lots of decent people go to prison, Becky says. That's ridiculous, Kate says. You can't generalize about convicts any more than you can generalize about the rest of humanity. So, Becky says... If somebody in the rest of humanity had something to hide, he'd hide it too, wouldn't he? Let's go get a tree, Howard says. We'll get a tree. Somebody got hit on the highway carrying a tree home, Becky says. Really? You really do have your ear to the ground in this town, Kate says. You kids could be the town crier. I know everything before the paper comes. It happened yesterday, Becky says. Christ, Howard says. We're talking about crying. We're talking about death. He is leaning against the counter again. We are not, Kate says, walking in front of him to open the refrigerator door. She puts a plate of stuffed tomatoes inside. In your typical fashion, you've singled out two observations out of a lot that have been made, and... I woke up thinking about Dennis Badu last night, Howard says to me. Remember Dennis Bidoux, who used to taunt you? Dad put me up to having it out with him, and he backed down after that. But I was always afraid he'd come after me. I went around for years pretending not to cringe when he came near me. And then, you know, one time I was out on a date, and we ran out of gas, and as I was walking to get a can of gas, a car pulled up alongside me, and Dennis Padu leaned out the window. He was surprised that it was me, and I was surprised that it was him. He asked me what happened, and I said I ran out of gas. He said, tough shit, I guess. But a girl was driving, and she gave him a hard time. She stopped the car and insisted that I get in the back, and they'd take me to the gas station. He didn't say one word to me the whole way there. I remembered the way he looked in the car when I found out he was killed in Nam. The back of his head on that ramrod straight body and a black collar or some dark-colored collar pulled up to his hairline. Howard makes a horizontal motion with four fingers, thumb folded under, in the air beside his ear. Now you're trying to depress everybody, Kate says. I'm willing to cheer up. I'm going to cheer up before tonight. I'm going up to that Lions Club lot on Main Street and get a tree. Anybody coming with me? I'm going over to Deirdre's, Becky says. I'll come with you if you think my advice is needed, I say. For fun, Howard says, bouncing on his toes. For fun, not advice. He gets my red winter coat out of the closet and I back into it, putting in my good arm. Then he takes a diaper pin off the lapel and pins the other side of the coat to the top of my shoulder, easing the pin through my sweater. Then he puts Kate's poncho over my head. This is the system because I am always cold. Actually, Kate devised the system. I stand there while Howard puts on his leather jacket. I feel like a bird with a cloth draped over its cage for the night. This makes me feel sorry for myself, and then I do think of my arm as a broken wing, and suddenly everything seems so sad that I feel my eyes well up with tears. I sniff a couple of times. And Howard faced down Dennis Badu for my sake. My brother. But he really did it because my father told him to. Whatever my father told him to do, he did. He drew the line only at smothering my father in the hospital when he asked him to. That is the only time I know of that he ignored my father's wishes. Get one that's tall enough, Kate says, and don't get one of those trees that look like a cactus. Get one with long needles that swoops. Swoops, Howard says, turning in the hallway. Something with some fluidity, she says, bending her knees and making a sweeping motion with her arm. You know, something beautiful. Before the guests arrive, a neighbor woman has brought Todd back from his playgroup and he is ready for bed, and the tree has been decorated with a few dozen Christmas balls and some stars cut out of typing paper, with paper clip hangers stuck through one point. The smaller animals in the stuffed toy menagerie, certainly not the bear, are under the tree, approximating the animals at the manger. The manger is a roasting pan with a green dinosaur inside. How many of these people who are coming do I know, I say. You know, you know. Howard is gnawing his lip. He takes another sip of wine, looks puzzled. Well, you know Koenig, he says. Koenig got married. You'll like his wife. They're coming separately because he's coming straight from work. You know the miners. You know, you'll really like Lightfoot, the new guy in the philosophy department. Don't rush to tell him that you're tied up with somebody. He's a nice guy and he deserves a chance. I don't think I'm tied up with anybody, I say. Have a drink. You'll feel better, Howard says. Honest to God, I was getting depressed this afternoon. When the light starts to sink so early, I never can figure out what I'm responding to. I gray over like the afternoon, you know. Okay, I'll have a drink, I say. The very fat man who's coming is in AA, Howard says, taking a glass off the bookshelf and pouring some wine into it. These were just washed yesterday, he says. He hands me the glass of wine. The fat guy's name is Dwight Cool the jansons who are also coming introduced us to him he's a bachelor used to live in the apple mystery man nobody knows he's got a computer terminal in his house that's hooked up to some mysterious office in new york tells funny jokes they come at him all day over the computer who are the jansons you met her the woman whose lover broke into the house and did caricatures of her and her husband all over the walls after she broke off with him one amazing artist from what i heard You know about that, right? No, I say smiling. What does she look like? You met her at the races with us, tall, red hair. Oh, that woman. Why didn't you say so? I told you about the lover, right? I didn't know she had a lover. Well, fortunately, she had told her husband and they decided to patch it up. So when they came home and saw the walls, I mean, I get the idea that it was rather graphic, not like stumbling upon hieroglyphics in a cave or something. Husband told it as a story on himself, going down to the paint store and buying the darkest can of blue paint they had to do the painting over because he wanted it done with, none of this three-coat stuff. Howard has another sip of wine. You haven't met her husband, he says. He's an anesthesiologist. What did her lover do? He ran the music store. He left town. Where did he go? Montpelier. How do you find all this stuff out? Ask, get told, Howard says. Then he was cleaning his gun in Montpelier the other day, and it went off, and he shot himself in the foot. Didn't do any real damage, though. It's hard to think of anything like that as poetic justice, I say. So are the Jansons happy again? I don't know. We don't see much of them, Howard says. We're not really involved in any social whirl, you know. You only visit during the holidays, and that's when we give the annual party. Oh, hello, Becky says, sweeping into the living room from the front door, bringing the cold and her girlfriend Deirdre in with her. Deirdre is giggling, head averted. My friends, my wonderful friends, Becky says, trotting past, hand waving madly. She stops in the doorway and Deirdre collides with her. Deirdre puts her hand to her mouth to muffle a yelp, then bolts past Becky into the kitchen. I can remember being that age, I say. I don't think I was ever that stupid, Howard says. A different thing happens with girls. Boys don't talk to each other all the time in quite the same intense way, do they? I mean, I can remember when it seemed that I never talked but that I was always confiding something. Confide something in me, Howard says, coming back from flipping the balk on the stereo. Girls just talk that way to other girls, I say, realizing he's serious. Get on Kremer, Howard says, clamping a hand over his heart. God, tell me that isn't beautiful. How did you find out so much about classical music, I say, by asking and getting told? In New York, he says, before I moved here, before L.A. even. I just started buying records and asking around. Half the city is an unofficial guide to classical music. You can find out a lot in New York. He pours more wine into his glass. Come on, he says, confide something in me. In the kitchen, one of the girls turns on the radio and rock and roll, played low, crosses paths with box violin. The music goes lower still. Deirdre and Becky are laughing. I take a drink, sigh, and nod at Howard. When I was in San Francisco last June to see my friend Susan, I got in a night before I said I would, and she wasn't in town, I say. I was going to surprise her, and she was the one who surprised me. It was no big deal. I was tired from the flight, and by the time I got there, I was happy to have the excuse to check into a hotel, because if she'd been there, we'd have talked all night acting like Becky and Deirdre, right? Howard rolls his eyes and nods. So I went to the hotel and checked in and took a bath, and suddenly I got my second wind, and I thought, what the hell, why not go to the restaurant right next to the hotel, or in the hotel, I guess it was, and have a great dinner, since it was supposed to be such a great place. What restaurant? L'Etoile. Yeah, he says, what happened? I'm telling you what happened. You have to be patient. Girls always know to be patient with other girls. He nods yes again. They were very nice to me. It was about three quarters full. They put me at a table, and the minute I sat down, I looked up and there was a man on a banquette across the room from me. He was looking at me and I was looking at him, and it was almost impossible not to keep eye contact. It just hit both of us, obviously. And almost on the other side of the curve of the banquette was a woman who wasn't terribly attractive. She had on a wedding ring, he didn't. They were eating in silence. I had to force myself to look somewhere else, but when I did look up, he'd look up, or he'd already be looking up. At some point, he left the table. I saw that in my peripheral vision, when I had my head turned to hear a conversation on my right and I was chewing my food. Then after a while, he paid the check and the two of them left. She walked ahead of him and he didn't seem to be with her. I mean, he walked quite far behind her, but naturally he didn't turn his head. And after they left, I thought, that's amazing. It was really like kinetic energy, just wham. So I had my coffee and then I paid my check. When I was leaving, I was walking up the steep steps to the street and the waiter came up behind me and said, excuse me, I don't know what I should do, but I didn't want to embarrass you in the restaurant. The gentleman left this for you on his way out and he handed me an envelope. I was pretty taken aback, but I just said thank you and continued up the steps. And when I got outside, I looked around. He wasn't there naturally. So I opened the envelope and his business card was inside. He was one of the partners in a law firm and underneath his name he had written, "'Who are you? Please call.'" Howard is smiling. So I put it in my purse and I walked for a few blocks and I thought, well, what for really? Some man in San Francisco? For what, a one night stand? I went back to the hotel and when I walked in the man behind the desk stood up and said, "'Excuse me, were you just eating dinner?' And I said a few minutes ago, and he said, someone left this for you. It was a hotel envelope. In the elevator on the way to my room, I opened it, and it was the same business card with please call written on it. I hope you called, Howard says. I decided to sleep on it, and in the morning I decided not to. But I kept the card. And then at the end of August, I was walking in the East Village, and a couple, obviously from out of town, were walking in front of me, and a punk kid got up off the stoop where he was sitting and said to them, Hey, I want my picture taken with you. I went into a store, and when I came out, the couple and the punk kid were all laughing together, holding these Polaroid snaps that another punk had taken. It was a joke, not a scam. The man gave the kid a dollar for one of the pictures, and they walked off, and the punk sat back down on the stoop. So I walked back to where he was sitting, and I said, Could you do me a real favor? Could I have my picture taken with you, too? What, Howard says? The violin is soaring. He gets up and turns the music down a notch. He looks over his shoulder. Yeah, he says. The kid wanted to know why I wanted it, and I told him because it would upset my boyfriend. So he said, yeah. His face lit up when I said that, but that he would really appreciate two bucks for more film. So I gave it to him, and then he put his arm around me and really mugged for the camera. He was like a human boa constrictor around my neck, and he did a Mick Jagger pout. I couldn't believe how well the picture came out. And that night, on the white part on the bottom, I wrote, I'm somebody whose name you still don't know. Are you going to find me? And I put it in an envelope and mailed it to him in San Francisco. I don't know why I did it, I mean, it doesn't seem like something I'd ever do, you know. But how will he find you, Howard says. I've still got his card, I say, shrugging my good shoulder toward my purse on the floor. You don't know what you're going to do, Howard says. I haven't thought about it in months. How is that possible? How is it possible that somebody can go into a restaurant and be hit by lightning and the other person is too? It's like a bad movie or something. Of course it can happen, Howard says. Seriously, what are you going to do? Let some time pass, maybe send him something he can follow up on if he still wants to. That's an amazing story, Howard says. Sometimes, well, I hadn't thought about it in a while, but at the end of summer, after I mailed the picture, I'd be walking along or doing whatever I was doing, and this feeling would come over me that he was thinking about me. Howard looks at me strangely. He probably was, he says. He doesn't know how to get in touch with you. You used to be a screenwriter. What should he do? Couldn't he figure out from the background that it was the village? I'm not sure. If he could, he could put an ad in the voice. I think it was just a car in the background. Then you've got to give him something else, Howard says. For what? You want your sister to have a one-night stand? You make him sound awfully attractive, Howard says. Yeah, but what if he's a rat? It could be argued that he was just cocky and that he was pretty sure I'd respond, don't you think? I think you should get in touch with him. Do it in some amusing way if you want, but I wouldn't let him slip away. I never had him, and from the look of it, he has a wife. You don't know that no, I say, I guess I don't know. Do it, Howard says. I think you need this. And when he speaks, he whispers, just what a girl would do. He nods his head, yes. Do it, he whispers again. Then he turns his head abruptly to see what I am staring at. It is Kate, wrapped in a towel after her bath, trailing the long cord of the extension phone with her. It's Frank, she whispers, her hand over the mouthpiece. He says he's going to come to the party after all. I look at her dumbly, surprised. I'd almost forgotten that Frank knew I was here. He's only been here once with me, and it was clear that he didn't like Howard and Kate. Why would he suddenly decide to come to the party? She shrugs, hands still over the mouthpiece. Come here, she whispers. I get up and start toward the phone. If it's not an awful imposition, she says, maybe he could bring Deirdre's father with him. He lives just around the corner from you in the city. Deirdre's father, I say? here she whispers he'll hang up hi frank i say talking into the phone my voice sounds high false i miss you frank says i've got to get out of the city i invited myself i assume since it's an annual invitation it's all right right oh of course i say can you just hold on for one second sure he says i cover the mouthpiece again kate is still standing next to me i was talking to deirdre's mother in the bathroom kate whispers she says that her ex-husband's not really able to drive yet and that Deirdre has been crying all day. If he could just give him a lift, they could take the train back, but... Frank, this is sort of crazy and I don't quite understand the logistics, but I'm going to put Kate on. We need for you to do us a favor. Anything, he says, as long as it's not about Mrs. Joan Young's revision of a revision of a revision of a spiteful will. I hand the phone to Kate. Frank, she says, you're about to make a new friend. Be very nice to him because he just had his gallbladder out, and he's got about as much strength as seaweed. He lives on Ninth Street. I am in the car with Howard, huddled in my coat and the poncho. We are on what seems like an ironic mission. We are going to the 7-Eleven to get ice. The moon is shining brightly, and patches of snow shine like stepping stones in the field on my side of the car. Howard puts on his directional signal suddenly and turns— and I look over my shoulder to make sure we're not going to be hit from behind. Sorry, he says, my mind was wandering. not that it's the best marked road to begin with. Miles Davis is on the tape deck, the very quiet kind of Miles Davis. We've got a second for a detour, he says. Why are we detouring? Just for a second, Howard says. It's freezing, I say, dropping my chin to speak the words so that my throat will warm up for a second. I raise my head, my clavicle is colder. What you said about kinetic energy made me think about doing this howard says you can confide in me and i can confide in you right what are you talking about this he says turning onto property marked no trespassing the road is quite rutted where he turns onto it but as it begins to weave up the hill it smooths out a little he is driving with both hands gripping the wheel hard sitting forward in the seat as if the extra inch plus the brights will help him see more clearly The road levels off, and to our right is a pond. It is not frozen, but ice clings to the sides, like scum in an aquarium. Howard clicks out the tape, and we sit there in the cold and silence. He turns off the ignition. There was a dog here last week, he says. I look at him. Lots of dogs in the country, right, he says. What are we doing here, I say, drawing up my knees. I fell in love with somebody, he says. I had been looking at the water, but when he spoke, I turned and looked at him again. I didn't think she'd be here, he says quietly. I didn't even really think that the dog would be here. I just felt drawn to the place, I guess. That's all. I wanted to see if I could get some of that feeling back if I came here. You'd get it back if you called that man or wrote him. It was real. I could tell when you were talking to me that it was real. Howard, did you say you fell in love with somebody? When? A few weeks ago. The semester's over, she's graduating. She's gone in January. A graduate student like that, a 22-year-old kid, one of my pal Lightfoot's philosophy students. Howard lets go of the wheel. When he turned the ignition off, he had continued to grip the wheel. Now his hands are on his thighs. We both seem to be examining his hands. At least I am looking at his hands, so I do not stare into his face, and he has dropped his eyes. It was all pretty crazy, he says. There was so much passion so fast. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but I don't think I let on to her how much I cared. She saw that I cared, but she... She didn't know my heart kept stopping, you know. We drove out here one day and had a picnic in the car. It would have been your nightmare picnic, it was so cold. And a dog came wandering up to the car, big dog right over there. I look out my window, almost expecting that the dog may still be there. There were three freezing picnics. This dog turned up at the last one. She liked the dog. It looked like a mutt, with maybe a lot of golden retriever mixed in. I thought it was inviting trouble for us to open the car door, because it didn't look like a particularly friendly dog. But she was right, and I was wrong. Her name is Robin, by the way. The minute she opened the door, the dog wagged its tail. We took a walk with it. He juts his chin forward. Up that path there, he says. We threw rocks for it, a sure crowd pleaser with your average lost in the woods American dog, right? I started kidding around, calling the dog Spot. When we were back at the car, Robin patted its head and closed the car door, and it backed off, looking very sad, like we were really ruining its day to leave. As I was pulling out, she rolled down the window and said, Goodbye, Rover, and I swear its face came alive. I think his name really was Rover. What did you do, I say. You mean about the dog or about the two of us? I shake my head. I don't know which I mean. I backed out, and the dog let us go. It just stood there. I got to look at it in the rearview mirror until the road dipped and it was out of sight. Robin didn't look back. What are you going to do? Get ice, he says, starting the ignition. But that isn't what you meant either, is it? He backs up, and as we swing around toward our own tire tracks, I turn my head again. But there is no dog there, watching us in the moonlight. Back at the house, as Howard goes in front of me up the flagstone pathway, I walk slower than I usually do in the cold, trying to give myself time to puzzle out what he makes me think of just then. It comes to me at the moment when my attention is diverted by a patch of ice I'm terrified of slipping on. He reminds me of that courthouse figure. I don't know what it's called the statue of a blindfolded woman holding the scales of justice bag of ice in the left hand bag of ice in the right but there's no blindfold the door is suddenly opened and what howard and i see before us is koenig his customary bandana tied around his head smiling welcome and behind him in the glare of the already begun party the woman with red hair holding todd who clutches his green dinosaur in one hand and rubs his sleepy crying face with the other. Todd makes a lunge, not really toward his father, but toward wider spaces. And I'm conscious all at once of the cigarette smoke swirling and of the heat of the house there in the entranceway that turn the bitter cold outdoor air silver as it comes flooding in. Messiah, Kate's choice of perfect music for the occasion, isn't playing. Someone has put on Judy Garland and we walk in just as she is singing. That's where you'll find me. The words hang in the air like smoke. Hello, 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 Becky calls, dangling one knee-socked leg over the balcony as Deirdre covers her face and hides behind her. To both of you, just because you're here, from me to you, a million, a trillion hellos.
0: That was Greg Jackson, reading Where You'll Find Me by Anne Beattie. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 1986 and was included in Beatty's collection, Where You'll Find Me and Other Stories, which was published later that year. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance and conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, Greg, you were talking before the story about the use of symbol and metaphor in the story and and how there's so much happening below the surface. What what do you think is the primary subtext here?
1: Well, I think the, the, I don't know if it's the primary subtext or it's the primary sort of symbolic architecture. It has something very distinctly to do with where the title comes from, um, which is obviously the Judy Garland song from The Wizard of Oz. And there's a lot of references to, to The Wizard of Oz and also to this song. Um, and it sets up all these dichotomies between a world of kind of the real that you're in and a world that's a world of either some sort of fantasy, some sort of dream, a hope that's unrealized, and all these ideas of kind of false heavens almost that you're just sort of unable to gain access to.
0: Is there a wizard here behind the curtain?
1: No, there's no wizard. There's kind of a very anti-wizard moment. I mean, this story to me seems like it's a very not just sort of godless story, but kind of the absence of God seems to be a very present aspect of this, whether it's Messiah that isn't playing at the end of the story, and instead we have Judy Garland's song about a kind of make-believe heaven, um, or the green dinosaur Mm -hmm. that's in the manger (laughs) in the place of the baby Christ. I mean, dinosaur as, you know, kind of maybe the best image of the anti-Christian sort of Darwinian Alternative, um, there's something very robbed of some spiritual quality when the dog isn't there watching them in the moonlight. There's almost a feeling of some absent, godlike figure.
0: Yeah, there's no one pulling the strings, and everyone kind of wishes there were. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first image that we have of this narrator is of this poor bird with a broken wing. This idea that she's been crippled in so, in some way, you know, by breaking her arm, it's not doesn't seem like it's a huge deal. She fell while she's waving at a, you know, <laughs> waving her shopping bags, but should we start the story by thinking of this as somebody who is crippled, whether it's emotionally or physically?
1: It's hard to know exactly in what way the people in the story are damaged or held back by something. There certainly is this idea of her as a kind of bird-like figure that's either trapped in a cage at one point or that's crippled, has her wing broken, that can't fly. There's images of animals in zoos and aquariums and a man in in a prison. So there's kind of one set of things where somebody is sort of caged. And then there's also, you know, a kind of other set of figures that are almost the opposite, where they have a kind of freedom that they keep reaching for something uh, and they're unable to get it. I mean, Howard keeps going through these marriages, keeps finding new people. And it's obviously a kind of fantasy of some sort of freedom or some sort of revision that doesn't work. And even there's even the moment with Todd where he says the little boy, uh, Todd makes a lunge not really toward his father but toward wider spaces. And I think that there's a way in which both of these seem to be problematic options, the sense of being contained or caged and the sense of in a way being oppressed by your own desire for freedom And at the same time, again, not just to harp on the Wizard of Oz themes and references, but there's also a lot of stuff in the story about sort of being on a path, and it's unclear where the path leads. And for her, there's the issue of, you know, her constantly falling down or being afraid of falling down on this path. But even for Howard or something, there's a question of this path isn't well marked. And that idea of the kind of godlessness we were just talking about, it's sort of an idea of people not really knowing where they're going or how they navigate this, some are choosing a kind of risk aversion that maybe is landing them in a life that's more constricting than they want. And some are sort of lunging for freedom.
0: Yeah. Everybody is thinking about someone other than the person they're with. You know, Howard is thinking about the grad student he's fallen in love with. And the narrator is thinking about this nameless man in San Francisco. And even in the stories that Howard tells about the party guests, you know, there's the one whose lover breaks into the house and caricatures the walls. And and everyone is in the wrong, sort of in the wrong relationship in some way. Why do you think all of those relationships are misfiring? Is it because everybody's living in a sort of fantasy land?
1: I think that's part of it. You know, it would be one thing if people were pursuing the fantasy and then turning it into the reality. But I think holding the fantasy out as this possibility but also not realizing it sort of strands people in a kind of subjunctive moment or mood that they can't really then enter the moment that they're in. In a weird way, it's sort of Becky, the young girl, who's always kind of calling them back to the moment. Um, It's actually very interesting sort of in what you say, just, you know, a listener or someone reading the story wants to know how deft Anne Beattie is, and look at how she describes the characters wrapped up in the kind of preoccupations that aren't about what's going on right now. You can read almost every line of what Howard says as a reference to something that's going on in his mind and his personal life. And the story is constructed so that you can only do that backwards, or you can only do that a second time. You always find out what you need to know that informed what you learned after the fact right. so it really rewards a second time but yeah the characters are always they always sound like they're speaking to somebody else but they're actually saying something about themselves
0: yeah there's that wonderful you know moment where Howard's like jealous of how girls are friends and confide in each other he's like please confide in me <laughs> <laughs> please just talk to me someone tell me a secret and in fact I think on second reading you realize he wants her to confide in him so that he can confide in her with absolutely. this absolutely secret that's burning a hole in him One of the first lines that just made me burst out laughing was the idea that Howard met Kate on a blind date. Now, what married woman with two small children (laughs) goes on a blind date while her husband's in Denmark? I mean, what is that? Right. (laughs) Completely crazy, these relationships. And then Frank, so we know that the narrator has this boyfriend called Frank, um, who she possibly lives with. We don't know very much about him. What we know about him is he doesn't like salt. And he's invested in herbs, um, the way of the future. Uh, so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so coming back to the idea of fairy tales, the, him not liking salt makes me think of King Lear and the fairy tale it's based on, where mm. the daughter says, I love you as much as salt my food, and the father takes it as an insult, when in fact what she's saying is everything needs salt. You can't have life without salt. There's no flavor. Do you think that's what we're supposed to understand about Frank, that he's become flavorless for this woman?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he probably is in some sense, although there's kind of an odd parallel where she's talking about having these moments where she feels like the man in San Francisco is thinking about her, and then right at that moment, it turns out Frank has called, and he's decided to come to the party, and he's thinking about her. I mean, it's... The story does... She got her
0: signals crossed.
1: <laughs> yeah, she has her signals crossed. But also, you know, we are getting things heavily through her perspective. And there's a quality to which we have these moments where characters break through and we see that something's a little different um, from the version that we're getting reported to us. So we mm-hmm. kind of get Kate as this annoying, prattly yeah. character. But then we find out that this whole elaborate setup that uh, the narrator wears to deal with her broken arm and being cold, that Kate devised this whole system. So I don't know how much to right off Frank, but he certainly has that quality that you described. And for some reason, when you just were talking about uh, Salt with Lear, I was thinking of Salt in the story of Lot and the idea of looking back. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have that moment at the end when Robin doesn't look back yeah. and, and Howard does. Um, I mean, again, the story has so many of these sort of symbolic concatenations, and it's hard to sometimes know if you're just tracing them all to be kind of a uh, a completist, or if they actually are all meaningful. But that idea that they met on a blind date, and then at the end you have the image of Lady Justice, um, but without the blindfold, um, which again is an image that echoes and repeats the image at the beginning of um, the narrator holding the two bags and shaking them like maracas. There's all these sort of echoes and linkages and that question of, you know, are people able to see what's in front of them? Are they able to see the people? that they're with, clearly. Um, Obviously, something about seeing and blindness, you know, is important here.
0: Why do you think that she holds back from contacting the, uh, the guy in the restaurant? I mean, he goes all out, two different places. He leaves his card, please call, and she doesn't. Is she afraid?
1: I think maybe she's afraid. I think on the one hand, you know, I figure like Howard, it's a question of is he... Is he afraid to open up emotionally to this young student? Or is he afraid that this is actually just going to be the same pattern that he's been in for a long time? Right. And I think with the narrator, she's found something in L'Etoile, in this world you know, over the stars, um, that seems so perfect and magical. And the idea of knowing that it's something mundane or it's just about a one-night stand, she keeps talking about the one-night stand... She thinks about whether she wants to get in touch with him. She says, I decided to sleep on it. And then in the morning, I decided not to. And it's like that period of dreams in between is left out. And when she comes back to the reality, she doesn't believe that the dream could really come true. And I think that she's, I think she doesn't want to face that.
0: So then why send that Polaroid? Is it a, an invitation? Is it sort of a taunting? I mean, it's, the Polaroid is, is a mystery to me.
1: It could be that she wants to continue uh, a slightly kind of virtual or ethereal type of relationship. She says, I couldn't believe how well the picture came out. And it's kind of like, right, but the picture came out really well. But what about (laughs) the actual reality? What about your life? What about your life? (laughs) I think the hopeful side, it took me a while to actually figure out where the hopeful side might be in the story. I think the hopeful side in some way is actually in the stories that they tell, both Howard and the narrator, make stories of what's going on with them emotionally for each other. And it's in telling that story that's actually the only way this brother and sister find some sort of closeness and find some way of being emotionally open with one another. And there's some idea in the story, it's kind of buried, but there's some idea of stories and the transposition of life into stories and, into, and perhaps emotion into music that is kind of the one realm of some I don't know, some redemption. And maybe that's, maybe that's what it is for her. Maybe the best thing about this guy in San Francisco is holding on to that story and having that story to share with someone.
0: It's interesting that this story is written in the present tense when very little happens in the present tense. They go buy some ice, go for a drive. So all the weight is put into the stories within the story. And so then I wonder why she chose to tell it in the present tense.
1: Yeah, I wonder that too. Do you, I mean, can I throw it back on you for a second? Do you have an idea? I I think it's I just always... told you, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't know? Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's possibly to keep this sense that things are inconclusive. If you were telling it in past tense, you might feel pressured to find an ending for the the things that are raised, right? If it's in present tense, you don't necessarily have to.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the juxtaposition between life as it's lived, as you're saying, is this kind of ongoing thing as something that can't be sort of fixed in the amber of stories or a fantasy. It does make, I think, a stronger contrast in that question of kind of, can you enter the mundane life that they're leading as Becky does, as she says, you know, just because you're here from me to you, a million, a trillion hellos, can you be right in that moment of presence that's always ongoing and is always present tense or are you always going to be in some other moment another some other dream or fantasy?
0: Yeah, in a sense, everything in here is an unfinished story. We don't have an end, a satisfying end, with the guy in San Francisco. We don't have a satisfying end with Howard and Robin because she's about to leave and he doesn't know. And um, in the the story, we end it right when the party is about to start. <laughs> you know, we don't even get to see them meet the mushrooms stuffed with tomato, and the tomato stuffed (laughs) with cheese, and the cheese stuffed with mushrooms. (laughs) Um, So we never get there. We never get over the rainbow to where, where this all ends, I guess.
1: No, I don't think we do, although we have this sort of interesting moment when she's coming in at the very end, and all this sort of smoke from the house is flooding out, and there's this silver light, and the smoke's being caught in the light, and the Wizard of Oz is playing, and it's almost like it's almost like a movie projector catching the smoke or the dust right. and the spectacle or the show kind of of life is about to start.
0: In Beatty's Paris Review interview, she was talking about ending stories, and she said, I hate to summarize my stories at the end because I know that stories don't really have conclusions. It's only an appropriate moment for stopping. So I think she got to this point of the party beginning, and that was the appropriate moment for stopping what she wanted to do in this particular story.
1: Yeah. And I love, I mean, I love anything that kind of stops on the moment it should start, you know, whether it's ending Ulysses on the word, spoiler alert, on the word uh, <laughs> yes or ending a story on the word hello. Yeah. It does give this sense that I always love of the story opening out into the time and space after the story is over as opposed to closing down.
0: Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me is that this narrator, she's bumbling a little. She's not quite sure where she's going in life, but she's quite a, not harsh, but she can be a critical observer of others. She's funny about other people and, you know, trying to get away from the boredom of Kate's prattling or whatever else it is. And you'd think that her responses would be sort of cynical. But instead, she becomes kind of a figure of sweetness for me in the story. And then there's that one moment where she suddenly is reminded that she's a bird with a broken wing, and she bursts into tears. What, what do you think happens in that moment? Why is she suddenly flooded with that emotion?
1: I mean, there's a quality of sort of childhood and the legacy of childhood and what maturity means that does kind of pervade the story a bit. And she goes in from this moment of getting emotional when she's being put into all of these coats with a diaper pin Right into this moment of feeling very emotional and thinking about her brother and her big brother standing up for her. But then she immediately kind of turns and says, oh, he just did it for his father. And obviously, there's some aspect to childhood in this that's more in touch with something that's less performative, a little less mediated. But there's also a kind of weird trauma you can sense in the maturation process and the way that it kind of blunts people to their own emotional experiences. And I think maybe she's having a moment of realizing how kind of distanced she, I mean, she's literally being covered with coats, how many things have been piled on her that stand between her own authentic feeling and the world outside.
0: Yeah. And then the child in the story, the one who speaks, Becky is sort of cynical, you know. She, Her mother tells her, say hello to everyone, and then she makes this huge, sarcastic performance of that, which becomes sort of lovely, you know. <laughs> that very ending with her trillion hellos, you know, is really kind of gracious.
1: There's something the I love so much about Becky. The more I read this story, the more she goes from being a slightly obnoxious tween to being actually kind of like the character that you just feel like is saying what needs to be said when everybody else is sort of encased in some, right. you know, ice pond that's only half frozen that moment when she says you know lots of decent people go to prison <laughs> and her mom chastises her and she says yeah but you know when it's somebody in the rest of humanity uh if they had something to hide wouldn't they hide it too it's so perfectly comments on all these adults who are talking about everything but what's going on in their own private lives and she just calls it out and then howard's like we should get a tree just like immediately <laughs> let's, runs up let's out. do it
0: let's yeah <laughs> I mean Howard's stories are unfinished too. You think about you know when Kate moves in, he he drops his screenplay about Medgar Evers, <laughs> you know, and starts writing screenplay about you know the woman who married woman who moves in, and even that isn't finished because the other guy moves out to get married. He can't seal anything.
1: And Anne's deadpan is just so good in these moments with. The two men had been working on a script about or Evers, but when Kate and the children moved in, they switched to writing a screenplay about what happens when a man meets a married woman with two children on a blind date and the three of them move in with him and his friend. It's just something about the tone. <laughs> it's so perfect and, like, understated, but yeah, really funny. Yeah, you're right. Howard never finishes anything in relationships, seemingly, or his own yeah. life.
0: Um, I mean, it seems there's a sense in which everybody here is stumbling or sort of not pursuing what they want to pursue, not being sure what it is they want to pursue. And yet at the same time, you don't sense a huge crisis looming for anyone. You sort of think they're going to just take little steps in one direction or the other, no?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that there are definite consolations, even though Howard is obviously, in his own way, kind of feckless and, and flighty. He has this huge passion for music and he finds something in music that's really transcendent and almost, you know, has a godly quality. And it's sort of echoed again with the woman who had this affair with this guy who ran the music shop in town. And then it turns out her husband, who she gets back together with, of course, is an anesthesiologist. It's like everybody's sort of anesthetized. But then there are these moments where it's like music, you know, Bach or Miles Davis or or some sort of love does kind of swim in and galvanizes a kind of minor minor key transcendent moment for characters who don't have too much transcendence otherwise.
0: Yeah. I think there's some optimism in in the title, in the in the where you'll find me. It's in the future. You know, you will find me. You'll find me here.
1: Right. There's always the here and the scene of entering a kind of family and a party. It's family is the people who have to take you in. There is still kind of here maybe it's not the fantasy maybe it's the slightly mundane reality but maybe it's frank uh but yeah Yeah.
0: and he's going to turn up with deirdre's father
1: and herbs presumably
0: (laughs) (laughs) and everyone will be happy (laughs) well thank you so much greg
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Anne Beattie has published 11 story collections and 9 novels, including Mrs. Nixon and last year's A Wonderful Stroke of Luck. A winner of the Penn Malamut Award and the Ray Award for the short story, she's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1974. Greg Jackson is the author of Prodigals, a story collection published in 2016, for which he won the Bard Fiction Prize and the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.